I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 8th, 2019. Coming up, we talk with University of Colorado Scholar-in-Residence Jorge Perez-Gallego about non-traditional paths one might take after getting a science PhD, the interaction of art and science, and CU's grand challenge. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, and a lot of it is about bones. Most of your body's calcium is in your bones, but bones are not actually the main reason body uses calcium. Inside our cells, calcium serves as a more crucial role as a second messenger. The second messenger job works like this. Let's say the hormone insulin arrives at a cell with instructions. That hormone is a first messenger, and generally, it only docks near the surface of the cell. How does the hormone's instruction go inside the cell to where it needs to be delivered? That often comes from a second messenger of calcium ions. Cells bring in calcium second messengers by activating voltage-gated calcium channels. Like automatic doors, they use electricity to open up and let calcium ions flow in. After the calcium ions message has been delivered, the cell pumps the calcium ions back into the bloodstream. This is a calcium cycle that does remarkable things, but it is not really the news. It's been known for quite some time. Now here's the news. Tufts University and Harvard scientists have just published research that shows the voltage-gated calcium channels have another role. The electrical activation of those calcium channels helps a developing embryo go from just a few seemingly identical cells into things such as cartilage and bone. The new research shows that before birth, bodies are creating delicate electrical grids that guide the development of specialized cells in specific places, including where cartilage will be created, along with the right places to build a bone. There is more research to be done to understand this new discovery. In the meantime, we'll end with a caution. It's been known for many years now that long-term use of cortisol and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can increase damage to cartilage and bone. It's also been known that one reason these drugs do damage is that they disrupt electrical signals that otherwise would help the body be more clear about what needs repair. So, it may be that from the beginning of life to the end, we'll do a better job of singing the body electric if we maintain clear signaling in our body's calcium channels. And here's another surprising finding about bones. As you probably know, when an animal faces a predator or sudden danger, the heart rate goes up, breathing becomes more rapid, and fuel in the form of glucose is pumped through the body to prepare the animal to fight or flee. These physiological changes, which constitute the fight or flight response, are thought to be triggered in part by the release of the hormone adrenaline. But a new study published in the journal Cell Metabolism 
suggests that bony vertebrates can't muster this response to danger without the skeleton. The researchers found in mice and humans that almost immediately after the brain recognizes danger, it instructs the skeleton to flood the bloodstream with the bone-derived hormone osteocalcin, which is needed to turn on the fight-or-flight response. The osteocalcin travels through the bloodstream to affect the functions of the pancreas, the brain, muscles, and other organs. Osteocalcin also helps regulate metabolism by increasing the ability of cells to take in glucose, improves memory, and helps animals run faster and with greater endurance. This research gives a new view that bones are not just calcified structures that provide support and protect encasing organs and marrow for blood cells, but they also are deeply involved in the body's hormone chemistry. On the science calendar, there are several shows this week at the Fisk Planetarium on the University of Boulder campus. Tomorrow and Thursday, October 9th and 10th at 7 p.m., Fisk features their monthly Science Under the Dome series with Kate Hale, a Ph.D. student in geography. Her talk, titled The Water Towers of the West, will discuss how the mountains in our backyard serve as our greatest water towers, holding the vast majority of all water in the region. The water comes to us in the form of snow and its availability and seasonal patterns are changing. She will explore the history and role of snow in the mountainous west, its relationship to weather, climate, elevation, and its effects on downstream humans, our infamous wildflower season, and the local elk and pika. She will touch on water rights, the culture and politics of the ski industry in response to snow, and the current publicly sourced conservation initiatives meant to address the changing snowpack. That's October 9th and 10th at 7 p.m. at Fisk Planetarium. Then this Friday, the 11th at Fisk at 7 p.m., is the show Incoming, Hard-Hitting Stories of Our Cosmic Origins. This show presents how asteroids and comets colliding with the Earth are connected to our origins. It explores the past, present, and future of our solar system and the landmark discoveries scientists have made sending spacecraft to visit the tiny worlds. To find out more about those and other shows presented at Fisk Planetarium, visit their website at www.colorado.edu slash Fisk. And that is spelled F-I-S- K-E.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Science and art. They have more common than you might think, and yet they are often as separated and traditional instruction in classes. They're taught as different topics. But what happens if we bring those areas together? Our guest today is Dr. Jorge Perez Gallego, a University of Colorado Scholar-in-Residence. Dr. Perez Gallego inhabits that science-art interface, having a PhD in astronomy and an MFA in design. His happy place is when he is developing innovative informal science education opportunities or building bridges between science, art, and technology. He is here to talk with us about all that and more, and perhaps what it has to do with the video game Minecraft. Welcome to How on Earth, Jorge. Thank you for having me here, Joel. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure being here. Well, it's great having you. And so I just wanted to first just find out what exactly is a scholar in residence? So basically, for me, what a scholar in residence is... It's a great opportunity for me to keep doing the research that I want while I get to also give back to the community in campus through my teaching and service. So is it connected with one department, multiple departments? How does that work? So my situation, it's kind of hybrid, and I'm kind of defining it in myself. I do things for uh, Fisk Planetarium, for APS. I do things for CMCI. So, so APS is the astronomy department. Correct. CMCI. It's a College of Communication Information. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I try, you know, kind of like mimicking that whole thing that you were just mentioning about me being a cross-disciplinary <laughs> individual. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to do that also through my scholarship here at CU Boulder. And you have a somewhat what people might call a non-traditional path after you got your PhD in astronomy. Yeah. Uh, after I got my PhD in astronomy, I actually kind of like quit uh, astronomy, not really, but I did quit the traditional academic path, um, which got, usually is you, you get do a postdoc. Yeah, and you get your postdoc. Try to which, get that. You yeah, know, which I did, job. and you get like a couple of postdocs because there's not enough faculty positions for all the people that are being graduated. So you take like two or three postdocs between you can get your faculty position. I got the first one, but I decided that I wanted to explore other things. Basically, I wanted to use astronomy and use what I had learned in my astronomy career in a more informal setting. Try to find informal settings that would allow me to communicate uh, those complex ideas to larger audiences and complex ideas both in astronomy and the rest of science. Because, you know, once you get a PhD on a specific science, that doesn't make you an expert on any other science, <laughs> but it makes you literate to engage with other scientists in those sort of conversations. Right, right. So uh, you you went from there and uh, you did a partial postdoc for a while, and then you decided to go back for the MFA, right? Yeah, I had been always, I grew up, uh, my dad was very mathematical, my mom was very artistic, so I grew up actually using my hands a lot for artistic endeavors uh, through my mom. And it's something that I had always appreciated, but I had never really explored. 
But I thought like, well, what if I actually explore these and use whatever I can learn from uh, this alternative, complementary way of thinking, which is art, in order to help my efforts in informal education. And that's what brought me to, to try to get an MFA, yeah. And and uh, I, I saw a talk that you gave, and you, you talked about, I think maybe it was your final MFA uh, work was um, a science store, was it? Correct. So, <laughs> you know, while I was in, in science, I was just one more. And science had one definition. We understood what science meant, and it meant kind of like similar to all my peers, right? When I went to art school, all of a sudden I was the outsider. Um, the definition of science was way more fluid. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't as strict. It wasn't as um, formal as it was before. So I wanted to explore that. And I wanted to learn from those other definitions or those other relationships that people had with science to just like opened my mind like to, okay, how can I tackle these challenges of informal science education to people that might have a different perception? A, perception a different vocabulary and imagery from either popular culture or otherwise of what science is. Correct. So what I did for my MFA thesis, I turned an art gallery into a store uh, and it was actually a performance. I, I turned the art gallery into a store and I actually developed a bunch of packaging that um, had like scientific concepts inside of mm. course there were empty packages but they <laughs> that's they, no commentary on science <laughs> yeah that's not commentary of science but uh they look really appealing and really nice so you would get all these shells full of like newton's laws thermodynamic laws like chromosomes and all that and i would act as a store clerk and engage in conversation with people about what they wanted. I would help them find their science the same way that you are helped to find your shoes. And so if I was interested in Newton's first law, yeah. you could find me uh, something that I would like to buy. <laughs> yeah, and I would tell you also that you could get it by itself or you could get it as a pack, you know, mm -hmm. and I would tell you why <laughs> the pack is important and eventually we would get to the price. And that would allow me to engage in a conversation about what the value of science is for people because... There were no price tags. It was voluntary donation. Mm -hmm. But we would, I would engage, I would challenge people to, you know, discuss what's the value of this concept, what's the value right. of this idea, what's the added value that science might be bringing to us as a collective. Yeah, What what is science worth to you? Yeah. And really breaking it down to... The, the basics, F yep. equals MA, you know, yep. how much are you going to pay for that? <laughs> exactly. And also by doing so, that allowed me to turn the whole thing into a fundraiser. And I made a, a donation to the local uh, science museum, like Natural History Museum at the University of Florida, where I did this. So this, this background really positioned you well for science communication and interaction with the public, people who maybe are science curious, but really don't understand. You have kind of a foot in both areas. And so you went on from there uh, working and building museums in Planetaria. Yeah, I actually, I was lucky enough to be recruited uh, for the opening team of the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science in Miami. What they were doing, they were turning the all beloved uh, Science Museum of Miami, 50,000 square feet, 
into this like huge 250,000 square feet, amazing building by the bay with an aquarium, a science museum, and a planetarium. Uh, really revamping the science museum offering for the community of Miami and Miami-Dade. It must have been fun to be there kind of on the ground level of building a, a science museum it was planetarium. like a, it was like a playground for me like loving informal science education so much like being at the beginning of a center that celebrates informal science education and being able to discuss with experts in every single field the best ways to communicate the specific ideas, uh, bring the exhibitions together, bring the concepts together, developing the spaces, envisioning how people would navigate the, spa the space and learn here and learn there and what they would take home. It was an amazing, for me, it was like being at a playground. Yeah, I could, I could imagine just whatever you could come up with, and you have all of this at your disposal. I think one of the uh, um, one of the things you developed was something called Feathers to the Stars. Correct. So that was a very interesting challenge. You can think about it in terms of like, what are your favorite things at a science museum? A lot of kids, and we did this survey, a lot of kids would tell you dinosaurs, ah, yes, aircraft, and space. Okay, so... The goal, the challenge was like, <laughs> let's try to bring those three things together into the same gallery and make them make sense. Uh, when you start thinking about it and when you start writing about it, you realize that there's a common thread, which is the threat of flight. Uh, we now know that birds evolve from dinosaurs. Birds, of course, inspire us to fly. And once we conquer the skies here on Earth, we were ready for the next uh, step and we've started ex space exploration. Uh, you showed a, a great picture of combining all three topics. What was it? Yeah, from Calvin and Hobbes, one of my favorite cartoons. There was a T-Rex in a jet fighter flying into the stars. <laughs> that just encompasses everything. Yes. So um, if you've just joined us, uh, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm talking with University of Colorado Scholar-in-Residence Jorge Perez-Gallego about about everything, science and art and dinosaurs flying in airplanes in space. As another aspect of your science communication work, you are doing something with a National Science Foundation-funded project about using Minecraft? Correct. So can you explain? Yes. So the whole idea of uh, informal science education is that is what you learn outside of the formal classroom. And a lot of people don't realize, but most of what we learn through our lives, everyone, it's in an informal setting. Mm. Like whether you're a kid or you're an adult, a lot of things you're learning in a place that has not specifically being designed for formal education outside of the classroom. Which the probably makes it more accessible because it's not formal. Exactly. And a lot of people might be learning things by listening to your show. A lot of people learn things about bones when you made the intro, right? That's an informal setting. So there's this whole idea of like, especially with elementary school kids, like they occupy their spaces and usually those spaces that they freely want to occupy are not the classroom. So there's this whole idea of like you can go and start playing basketball with them at a basketball court, right? And you bring your friend along that is really good at basketball, so they all want to be like him or mm -hmm. her. And um, and then you start telling the kids about like parabolas. Uh -huh. And you start telling the kids like what your friend is actually like 
making all the shots, like you start telling them about parabolas, about like <laughs> initial force, about initial angle. And then when you break for water, the kids come to you and they turn the, the basketball court into a classroom because they start asking you, hey, what's a parabola? And you draw it with chalk on the floor and all that. And this learning happens, right? So the whole idea is like, how do we extrapolate these into the modern world in which like the space that kids want to occupy freely oftentimes is on the digital world. Mm -hmm. It's online. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of kids that um, use Minecraft. So the idea was like, can we leverage uh, Minecraft as an informal education environment to teach physics and astronomy to these kids. And this is a project with uh, Chat Lane at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and um, Neil Cummins at the University of Maine. And we're trying to do that. Like, we actually recreate what-if worlds in Minecraft. So think, for example, we remove the moon from sure. the Earth. How would that impact the way the Earth looks? So we create those worlds and kids can navigate them. But not only that, we can also create worlds that mimic to the best of our understanding, to the best of our guesses, the new exoplanets that we keep finding. Exoplanets which are key to the, the current revolution in astronomy. Uh, two exoplanet scientists sure. just got a Nobel Prize today. That's right. So it's a... Uh, it's a wonderful project, and we were really happy to get the money because, like, usually in formal education projects, the success rate for these are under 10%. So when we got the, the fans to work on these and really exploring these, we were really excited. So that, you know, that sounds like a great project because it's learning physics in a playful environment. Um, you have uh, another you're involved in another project here at CU. It's CU's Grand Challenge and something called NEST, the Nature, Environment, Science, and Technology Studio for the Arts. Could you just explain a little bit what is the Grand Challenge and what is NEST? So the Grand Challenge is something that was like launched by Obama during his last year. It's like he has everyone with the means to help the U.S. and the world uh, tackle the challenges of the future. CU decided to actually create an Office of Grand Challenge and identify efforts in campus to actually do so. And the Nature, Environment, Science and Technology uh, Studio for the Arts, uh, the arts that I co-direct with professors Tara Knight and Erin Espoli um, does that by bringing together scientists and artists, by bringing together those two complementary ways of thinking about the world to really tackle challenges that, that we are facing. And what's most exciting about this effort is that it allows me to facilitate the kind of life that I pursued in graduate students that are actually getting their degrees now. So we have like these grants that we give out every year uh, to pairs, teams of two. Uh, one of them from the sciences in the broadest sense, one of them from the arts in the broadest sense. And they work together on a project over the summer that bring together their both expertises. And so far, like we've done this uh, one year, it's done. We're on the second year. We'll do our call for proposals later this year for the third year. But so far, it's been an amazing effort. And we've gotten like some outstanding projects. I'm just going to mention yeah, one. Yeah, what, what kind of projects come out of this collaboration? Yeah, so I'm going to mention one. So a lot of people don't realize that um, one of the most polluted indoor environments that we have is nail salons. So there was this mechanical engineer, Alan Lamplock, working on how to 
clean them, how to try to clean them in a way that was efficient and in a way that was welcoming to the nail salon as a, as a business. Yeah, I've walked by nail salons and you can just smell yeah. the chemicals. So imagine the people that are working there 24-7. Well, they don't work all day, but like 40 or 80 hours a day. I don't know how long they mm-hmm. work, but they're there all the time smelling and, and breathing those pollu- pollutants. So he partnered with a ceramicist, uh, Camila Garlics, and they actually turned the materials that Aaron was working on into some sort of like clay that they could work with and create these beautiful sculptures that would be welcomed by an industry that actually celebrates beauty. And those sculptures actually clean the air by absorbing the pollutants from the environment. And it's like, it's a wonderful project and it really requires both ways of approaching it, like uh, Camila's and, and Aaron's. So this this is basically a piece of art that's a ceramic carbon, some, something that actually cleans the air exactly yeah correct correct that that's a beautiful way of yeah. showing just one example of yeah. an interface and and what i'd like to mention also is that besides uh supporting graduate student work we decided that this was too great to just stay there so starting last year and and we'll follow again this year we'll announce it in december we'll have community grants uh grants for people here in the in the boulder area uh denver area that are working at the intersection of science and our and that want to work on projects that um you know feed our mission so we have grants of up to twenty five hundred dollars for for those sort of efforts uh where can people go to find out more information about this so this is nestcuboulder.org nest CU Boulder is one word, dot org. Thank you very much for being on the show, Jorge. We'll have you come back and we'll hear more about the next round of CU Challenge Nest projects and see what they are. Thank you for having me, Joel, and thank you to everyone listening this morning. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Brian May, who also inhabits that interface of art and science overlapping wave functions. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? We'll call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.